the world needs to hear this. Showing how these reptilian bloodlines in this Chittahuli, this reptilian group, expanded their power across the world. This is what this nonsense is all about. There are lies. There are big lies. They are... There are enormous lies. There are gigantic whoppers. You're dealing with people you cannot rationally have a conversation with. Thomas Robertson, he, him, take you on a journey through the world of British conspiracy theorist David Icke, a self-confessed tireless campaigner for truth. Oh boy, today we push on deeper into the trap. Oh, I know you're not sick of this yet. <laughs> when we last left off, Icke had consulted the oracular Betty Shine and received a message from Socrates from the spirit world, picking up where we left off. So... Ike writes of leaving politics, as was foretold by Betty Shine, or Socrates, or Wang Yi Lee. I, yeah, who gets the credit? I don't, I don't know who gets the credit, the medium or the spirit. Anyway, Ike's motivation to withdraw from the party was twofold, uh, according to Ike at least. To pursue his special destiny outside of politics, and he, as he claims, uh, to protect the party from the reputational damage of being associated with David Ike. He writes, I began to withdraw from working with the Green Party. I wanted to distance myself in the knowledge that the time would come when I would speak about what was happening and it would generate much skepticism and ridicule. Just how much I would find out early in 1991. I wanted to protect the party from that as much as I could. In line with the Betty Shine communications, it took the best part of a year to withdraw from politics completely. I did confide to a couple of Green Party insiders a little about little bit about what I was experiencing, and soon the rumours were circulating in the party that National Speaker David Icke was going a little crazy. Despite claiming he had noble intentions to protect the reputation of the Green Party from what he foresaw as the inevitable ridicule, Icke's next paragraph makes him sound awfully bitter about the whole thing as he puts the boot into the party. If you want to experience a closed mind that thinks it's open, find yourself a Green, and even more so today as the green mind has coagulated into the all-encompassing, concreted, encased insanity known as woke. My time in the Green Party had given me both an insight into the green mind, now far more extreme, and also into politics at close range that would be very useful later on. Politics is going to change nothing, I concluded, and no matter what the party name, colour of rosette, or claim to be different, the political mind blueprint is common to them all. Caroline Lucas who became Britain's first Green Party Member of Parliament, worked in the National Office when I was involved. Almost every time she opens her mouth, she supports the agenda of the global multi-billionaire elite, while thinking she's anti-establishment. The global Green movement and the Green parties that represent its political wing have degenerated into little more than a fascistic tyranny and a free speech deleting mob promoting the coordinated sinister agenda of billionaires and corporations that I, ha I have been now been exposing for more than three decades. Ike's writing here doesn't quite gel for me with his claim that he wanted to protect the party. Ike's basically saying, I wanted to protect the party from the negative light my association with them would cast on them, but also no political party is ever going to affect change because the system is broken. If you really believe that, why worry about protecting the party's reputation? Why claim you were worried? Why not just say outright that you decided writing about lizard people was a more valuable use of your time than politics? I wanted to look harder at this, so I put my research hat on. I'll admit it was hard for me in Australia to track down some of the books I wanted, which detailed the history of the Green Party in the UK. Uh, one book in particular by Derek Wall was referenced frequently, which I couldn't get a copy of uh, before putting this episode out, but I'll see if I can scare it up and we can revisit this period of Ike's life when I do. Here's what I have found, though. The fact of the matter seems to be that the Green Party was quite happy to part ways with Ike. The early and the mid-90s for the Green Party were fraught with internal divisions and disagreements over the direction of the party. But Ike's outlandish claims were able to unite the party, at least against him, and he was barred from the party in 1994. Ike had resigned his position as spokesperson in 1990, but it seemed clear that he quickly alienated himself from the party. 
I guess we can uh, refer back to his previous comment about uh, word getting around that national speaker David Icke was going a little bit crazy. Nevertheless, uh, by the 1992 party conference, a year after Icke had published Truth Vibrations, which you may remember from previous episode, uh, and had his disastrous interview with Wogan, Icke was on the outs with the party. His messianic aspirations had alienated him from the wider party and the public, truth be told, and despite speaking at the 1992 party conference, his appearance was organised by a fraction within the party dubbed in reporting of the event as the Pagan Greens, so just a minority of the, of the party. Now, if you're standing, I'll ask you to please sit down, and if you're driving, it's best you pull over to the side of the road for what I'm about to tell you. Believe it or not, I doesn't say any of this in the trap. Neither his alienation within the party, nor his eventual barring from the party. Ike is content to let the reader believe that he quietly withdrew from the party. Ike's presentation of his personal history is consistent with his presentation of world history, in so much as he's happy to pick and choose details and omit them to make his point. Politics wasn't the only thing that Ike was about to leave behind. Ike writes, My life was about to change dramatically in the wake of those visits to Betty Shine. Within weeks, the BBC failed to renew my contract, and I was out of work with no income. I was set free to follow where events were taking me. If you'll remember from a previous episode, Ike was on thin ice with his bosses at the BBC because of his political activities particularly for participating in an act of civil disobedience by refusing to pay the community charge introduced by the Thatcher government. He writes, I had one or two minor offers for TV work when I left the BBC, but I wasn't interested. I had made the decision that I was going with this, whatever this actually was. By now I could see that life is forever, and that we are eternal expressions of consciousness having a brief experience called human. The worst thing I could do was completely mess up one human life, and I could handle that. Bring it on. Let's see where this goes. Ike says the worst he could manage was to completely mess up one human life, except that that isn't exactly true. Ike was married with three kids. What did the family make of Ike blowing up his career at the BBC and burning his bridges with the Greens? Well, Ike would have us believe that they took it in stride, writing... My family was not having my strange experiences as the upheaval began in my life, and their own. Why should they understand what was happening to Dave and Dad? I didn't understand, never mind them. To their eternal credit, they continued to stand by me, even through the tidal wave of ridicule that was soon to be unleashed. Fortunately, I had always lived below my income in terms of spending, and there was a bit of money to get us through a year or so without paid work. The idea of getting up to your neck in debt, thus dependency, to live some expensive lifestyle in a big house never appealed to me. I guess being brought up in my early years, and many after, with a pay packet lasting only to the end of the week, or month, left its mark that way. There was also the message that said, he will always have what he needs, and I always have. I'll give Ike the benefit of the doubt for a moment here, and say maybe the decision Ike made to leave TV and politics behind was made together with his then-wife Linda, and he had her full confidence, but... That being said, if my partner started trusting our family's financial security to the promises made by a psychic channeling Wang Yi Li and Socrates after losing both of his jobs, I would be in full-blown panic. I've said it once and I'll say it again, it can't be easy being married to David Icke. Shine had proclaimed that Ike would write five books in three years and he didn't waste any time in putting pen to paper. Ike began writing his first book about his new mission, Truth Vibrations, which I quoted extensively from the last episode. He writes, Through the rest of 1990 I was compiling my first book on these subjects and what had happened to my life. I called it Truth Vibrations. The title was inspired by an amalgamation of information through the psychics about an energetic frequency that was going to be infused into our reality to awaken humanity from its slumber induced by forces that I would subsequently expose. I was told that this frequency, or vibrational change, would have two main effects. It would open closed minds to a greater reality of self and the world, 
with the most open affected first, and eventually even those at the time with padlocks on their minds would be teased awake. The other effect, hence the book title, was that the vibrational change would bring to the surface all that had been hidden from us. Although Ike doesn't say so here, I wonder if at the time, given his preoccupation with world-destroying earthquakes, Ike didn't think that the truth vibrations was a very clever pun. Anyway, Ike elaborates about these vibrational changes he anticipated would surface. He writes, When I was told all this in 1990, there was no evidence that any of it was true. If you observed global society, there was no evidence that people were waking up from their induced perpetual coma, or that the hidden was being revealed. This continued to be the case for many years, a fact I can seriously confirm from my own direct experience of dismal and ridicule. Then came the millennium with 9-11 and the western wars of conquest and destruction in the Middle East. I began to observe how minds were beginning to stir and view the world differently. This has continued to expand until a tsunami of awakeness has been triggered by the COVID era. In terms of all that has been hidden would be shown to us. Are you kidding? Look at what those with opening minds know about the world and the forces behind events that they didn't know in 1990, 1995, 2000, 2005, 2010, 2015, and so on. It is fantastic what has come to light as my previous books and this book clearly show. Now, if anything has changed over the 30 years since 1990 to give Ike the impression that people of the world are awakening, it's probably the internet. Social media has shrunk the world and Ike has the ability to find the like-minded or fans of his work in seconds now. The internet has made accessing each other easier than ever, for good and ill. Anti-vaxxers, QAnon, Ike, Alex Jones and other conspiracy theorists and grifters have found the internet to be a godsend for reaching new audiences. If you need proof, just look to Ike's new video platform, The Iconic. Ike has circumvented the restrictions of his entry to countries around the globe by making his content available, on demand, to anyone curious enough anywhere in the world. Ike needn't even leave his flat to give his lectures now. When Ike speaks to a live audience for a few hours, he only reaches as many as the venue can accommodate. But with video on demand, Ike is getting a much greater return on the time he invested. In 1990, the internet was in its infancy, and Ike still needed to get the message out the old-fashioned way. And that was writing a book. Ike writes that with the truth vibrations finished, he was starting to fancy a holiday. Truth Vibrations went into production at the end of 1990 for publication the following May, when what was left of my old life would be torched. From before Christmas, as the book was finished, I began to have the urge to go to Peru. I had no idea why. I knew nothing about Peru. In the same period, I would turn on the television and there would be a documentary about Peru or I would pass the local travel agent to see holidays to Peru featured in the windows. Purely on intuition, my constant guide now, I booked a flight I could not really afford to Lima, Peru. I tried to look if there was a tourism campaign by Peru in 1990 to attract visitors, but I couldn't find anything in particular. Ike claims he was lured to Peru by intuition, what I think the rest of us would probably call on a whim. When he arrived, he had no itinerary and plans and he writes he was guided by coincidences. Coincidences which would ultimately lead to a profound spiritual experience for Ike. My planned two weeks in Peru became three amid an incredible series of synchronicities and experiences. I landed in Lima early in the morning, not knowing what I would do next. Events moved fast the moment I entered the luggage hall, and within an hour of arriving, I was on another plane to Cusco in the Andes Mountains with a hotel secured and waiting. I tell that story in other books. I sat on the bed at the hotel thinking, okay, what now? Another hour of coincidences passed and I was connected with a Peruvian guide in a two-week itinerary. I went to all the major tourist sites, including the extraordinary and breathtaking Machu Picchu, and the guide took me to the city of Puno on the shores of Lake Titicaca, which, at some 13,000 feet above sea level, is billed as the highest navigatable lake in the world. He booked us into a hotel called the Sulistani, named after an Inca site a 40-minute drive away. There were pictures of Sulistani all over the hotel, and I looked at one of them, I had the overwhelming feeling, hard again, that I had to go there. I went the next day in a minibus taxi with the guide and a driver and spent an hour walking around the ruins. It was beautiful looking out from the high point across the land to a lake and distant mountains, but I went back to the bus feeling quite disappointed. What I had experienced did not match the powerful urge I'd had to go there the night before. 
that was to change rather dramatically. So Ike then proceeds to tell his tale in a ramble that exemplifies why he so badly needs an editor. Because I think a burden shared is a burden halved, I'll read it now in its entirety. Lucky you. A few minutes down the road on the way back to Puno, as I daydreamed out the window, I saw a hill to my right. Words began repeating in my mind. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Could my life get any stranger? Nine months earlier, I was presenting the snooker for the BBC, and I was a national representative for the Green Party. Now I was in Peru, purely on intuition, and a bloody hill was talking to me. I asked the driver to stop and climbed the hill to find a stone circle. I have never mentioned this before, because I have been trying to establish how it could possibly, how it could be possible, and now I have. I found the stone circle at the top of the hill, a stone circle that wasn't physically there. Yeah, yeah, Ike's crazy. Well, with the hindsight of 32 years, maybe not. I experienced a, so a stone circle at that time, and I'll explain what followed in a moment. The circle had some stones with memorable shapes, which made it easy to remember. I went back to Silistani with a group of people in 2012 to mark my 60th birthday, and returned to the hill to show them the circle. It wasn't there. The hill was, of course, just not the circle. Instead, it was in the main area of the Silistani site, looking exactly how I experienced it on that hill a mile or so from where it was physically. I recognised some of these stones. That so registered with me at the time. The discrepancy was not faded memory. I was telling the story of the circle on the hill immediately after it happened, and the story never changed. A whole stone circle hadn't been moved. Ugh. Not exactly. Not physically, anyway. I'll explain later how this could be done when we consider the illusory nature of physical reality. There is no physical as we perceive it, and you only have to study quantum physics to see that. Many people have told me, especially in the last year or so, that objects in their homes have disappeared. They remember exactly where they left them, and sometimes they will reappear exactly where they left them. The stories are far too numerous to dismiss, and anyway, I have experienced the phenomena myself. I live in a tiny flat where things cannot go missing, but they have, and when I know precisely where they were. If you think this is all too crazy and far out, it is from the perspective of normal, then strap in for the next bit. I walked to the centre of the circle and experienced a repeat of what happened in the newspaper shop in Ride. The soles of my feet began to burn and tingle with a sort of magnetism, and I couldn't move them. I felt energy pulsating into the top of my head, where the crown chakra vortex is located, and flowing through me into the ground. Another flow was coming the other way, my arms spontaneously stretched out at 45 degrees. I made no conscious decision to do that. It just happened. I reenacted the moment on my return to Silistani in 2012. I heard a thought form voice, clearly in my mind, which said, They will be talking about this a hundred years from now, and it will be over when you feel the rain. I was standing under a fierce Peruvian sun, looking into a brilliant blue sky with not a cloud to be seen. What rain? Where? The energy passing through me became ever more powerful, until my whole body was shaking. Time disappeared as I entered a realm of consciousness where there is no time, which is only an illusion of the simulation, as I will explain. I was mostly out there while all this was going on and in another realm of awareness. I returned to my conscious mind every now and then, like when you drive your car and can't remember the last few miles. Your conscious mind has been elsewhere, and your subconscious has been doing the driving. In one of those conscious periods, I saw a light grey mist over the mountains, way in the distance. The mist became progressively darker very quickly, and I could see that it was now raining heavily far away. I watched the storm come toward me ridiculously quickly, until dark clouds covered the sun, and a wall of stair-rod rain came straight across the hill and struck me with such power that I was instantly drenched. The front of the storm was a straight line you could have drawn with a ruler, and hence my term, wall of rain. If you put the scene in a movie, people would laugh at the very idea that this could ever happen, but it did happen. As the rain struck, the energy passing through me for most of an hour immediately stopped. My arms had been in the air all this time and I felt nothing. Now my shoulders were stiff and very painful, and my legs so weak I struggled to stand. Energy was still pouring from my feet and hands, and my feet were like that for the next 24 hours. I couldn't sleep that night because of it. I hope the poor driver waiting for Ike at the bottom of the hill left the meter running. As an aside for any Dragon Ball Z fans listening, 
Ike's rambling text is accompanied by a picture of him on the hill, hands stretched to the sky like he's charging a spirit bomb. Look, I don't really know what to make of Ike's episode on the hill. Ike's convinced the stone circle being somewhere different from where he remembers it is, in fact, magic, instead of him just misremembering something after 20 years. Apparently this is the same magic as when you can't find the TV remote, or your keys go missing, or you lose a sock. If the event played out as Ike retells it here, and this is a genuine account of what Ike experienced, an interesting picture starts to come together. Now, as a psychiatrist, I firmly am of the armchair variety. That is to say, I am not a psychiatrist at all, and I have no training or expertise to back up any of my speculation. Not a doctor, remember? That said, Ike is checking more than a few boxes describing a manic phase someone with bipolar disorder may experience. Someone experiencing a manic phase of their bipolar disorder may experience the following symptoms. Feeling incredibly high or euphoric, delusions of self-importance, high levels of creativity, energy and activity, getting much less sleep or no sleep, poor appetite and weight loss, racing thoughts, racing speech, talking over people, highly irritable, Impatient or aggressive, inappropriate sexual activity or risk-taking, dressing more colourfully and being less inhibited, impulsiveness and making poor choices in spending or business, grand and unrealistic plans, poor concentration, easily distracted, delusions, hallucinations. When I look at this list and remember, Ike has just left behind a successful career in broadcasting. Ike's delusions of self-importance and that he had just experienced a flurry of creativity researching and writing his book, Truth Vibrations. Ike had taken an impulsive trip to Peru, which by his own admission he couldn't really afford at the time. Ike experienced a hallucination, hearing and seeing things, such as the voice calling him to the hill and the stone circle, which were not actually present, and not forgetting that he took to wearing only turquoise clothing during this time. It doesn't preclude the possibility of Ike experiencing a manic episode. That being said, again, I am not a doctor, and even if I were, no doctor could make reliable diagnoses based on the information available. Nor would a responsible doctor attempt to make one. But I'm not a responsible doctor, so I'm exempt. I'm just speculating about the possibility, having noticed a pattern of behaviour. I think it's worth noting that Ike was very calm and composed during his appearance on Wogan. And although he was dressed peculiarly in his turquoise tracksuit and had odd things to say, he was actually very composed and thoughtful throughout the interview, without any signs of pressured, uh, pressured speech, rather, which characterizes someone experiencing mania. Even as the audience laughed at him, he managed to keep his composure. His composed behavior on the Wogan show torpedoes my bipolar hypothesis. So, the mystery continues. Fortunately, I can spare you any further speculation because Ike explains what just happened to him on the hill in a section aptly titled, What Just Happened? He writes, I had no idea what had happened or its soon-to-be experienced implications and it was years before I finally understood the process. I had my perceptual bubble shattered and I was plugged into a much higher and more expanded state of awareness. This transformation in terms of impact on my life would soon be played out in newspaper headlines and mass public ridicule. Information, concepts, perceptions poured into my consciousness and subconscious mind, and my ability to process it all was overwhelmed through sheer volume. It was akin to delivering too many instructions to a computer too quickly. It freezes. It can't process it all. I symbolically froze in just the same way, and it lasted about three months, by which time I became one of the most ridiculed people in British history. As I unfroze, People would say they thought I was supposed to have gone mad, when to them I was the same person they always knew. Yes, David had come back, although not the same one in the sense that while I acted the same and had the same outward personality, I was seeing the world through very different eyes. I was still okay when I headed from home, headed for home from Peru, and then soon after I arrived back in England, the consequences of that experience on the hill began to manifest. I didn't know where I was. I'd stayed another week in Peru and I had to change my flight. I was out of money thanks to a credit card that so few would accept in Peru at the time. I had to barter my radio to get a taxi to the airport. I was only on standby even then and if I didn't get on the flight I had no idea where I was going from there. A thought form
warm voice kept saying, don't worry, you'll get on the flight, and at one point that they had found me a seat with plenty of legroom. You write it as off as wishful thinking. With all the passengers checked in and the flight soon to leave, I was called across to the desk. I was on the flight, and when I went on board, my seat was next to the emergency door, and with a serious amount of legroom. These things are often done to give you both confidence in what is being communicated, and to say, don't worry, we're looking after you, and we always will. They have certainly looked after me. Who knows where Ike got the idea to visit Peru? In the trap, he claims it was purely intuition, his constant guide now, and then gives us an explanation of how said intuition works, and by doing so, provides us insight into the methods of his madness. He writes, Intuition comes to us through the heart vortex in the centre of the chest, which is one of the many vortexes known as chakras, or wheels of light, that interpenetrate the human energy field. We feel intuition in the chest for this reason. Another chakra vortex relating to emotion connects with the belly area, and that's why we feel emotion there and people get the shits when they are emotionally nervous and fearful. Watch the body language of someone saying they intuitively know. I just know and their hands will invariably go to their chest. When people say they are thinking, their hand goes to their head. These are indications of where the sources of the perception, knowing, or thinking is coming from. Thinking is very much the act of perceiving within the strict limitation of human simulation awareness, while intuition, knowing, comes from an expression of reality way beyond the human realm, and its phenomenal levels of illusion. Thought perception results from a sequence of thinking leading to a conclusion while intuition comes as one complete package with no run-up sequence. The heart knows because it is connected to that level of awareness that does know. The head mind thinks because it doesn't know, and it has to try and work it out with the sequence of thought. My conclusions come to me first through the heart, and then the detailed evidence to support them comes to my mind in the form of dates, places, people, and such like. Heart awareness and brain awareness are connected, or they are meant to be. They are not, however the same. Thus, we have the ontology, what is true, and the epistemology, how we discover and know the truth, of David Icke. It sounds fancy, but all Icke has done here is expand on what he said earlier about his research methods. To repeat the extract from the trap I read at the end of last episode, in the early years of the 1990s, I would be led to information and make conclusions from that about what was going on. Pretty soon that flipped and I would conclude what was happening first, and then the names, dates, places, and details would follow, supporting that conclusion. This is how I have worked ever since. Knowledge will be put into his mind, and at other times, he will be led to knowledge. You see, Ike discovers what's true because he feels it's true, and Ike is certain what he knows is the truth because he feels it. If Ike's brain were a snake, it would be eating its own tail. Ike arrives at his conclusions and arranges the facts to suit him, and he uses what Betty Shine told him in 1990 to justify this method of doing things. Ike goes by intuition, and he has no motivation to critically examine or question this intuition, as Ike believes it to be a sort of divine inspiration. The universal consciousness is guiding him and speaking through him. Ike's words, Ike's personality, but the universal consciousness's message. In Ike land where Ike lives, this is a perfectly reasonable way to make discoveries. Actually, it isn't reasonable, because reason is a limitation of the simulation. Ike intuits through his heart chakra, a message or knowledge from beyond the realm of the simulation we live in, like an epiphany, if you like. The validity of these intuitions is based on the heart chakra's connection to the realm beyond the simulation. The heart chakra is infallible, any fallibilities are edited out of Ike's history at least. Within the simulation, the mind is constrained, Thinking and reason are a limitation innate to the simulation. The acquisition of knowledge at the simulation level is constrained by the need to pass out information, to develop ideas and draw conclusions. For Ike, what lies beyond the simulation is the universal consciousness, and it is only truth. Basically, Ike goes with his gut, and his gut is never wrong. I have a lot more to say about how Ike thinks and how he thinks about thinking but I've decided it would be best to make that its own episode. And I'll do that after we finish looking at the trap. <laughs> How do you eat an elephant, guys? One bite at a time. One bite at a time.
Ike may have felt they were looking after him when it came to extra legroom, but they did a serious disservice to him when they didn't stop him from appearing on The Logan Show. Ike writes, For three months after my return from Silustani, if you asked me my name, I would have had to check, and I had no idea what was going on. It was like being in a permanent waking dream. I was invited in the middle of all that to appear on a live primetime BBC chat show hosted by then mega-famous Irishman, Terry Wogan. What followed became television folklore. The audience were laughing at me within minutes, egged on in many ways by Wogan, who would publicly apologise the years later for the way he handled it. He would interview me again in 2006 in a retrospective of his shows, and the interchange went very differently, with Wogan looking out of his depth and with my information that was well received by the audience in a turning of the tables that I understandably found very cathartic. The Wogan interview clips of which I've played in the last episode, put an end to David Icke, the footballer and broadcaster. When the interview was over, only David Icke, the conspiracy theorist, remained. Icke was now inseparable from the strange and outlandish ideas he promoted. It's interesting that Icke seems to blame Wogan for how he was received. The Wogan audience did laugh at him as Wogan gave what I think was appropriate pushback on the outlandish claims Icke was making. It would have been irresponsible for Wogan not to push back. Remember, Ike was talking about psychics predicting the end of the world. The regret that Wogan has expressed since is based, I think, more in a concern that Ike may have been vulnerable when he appeared on the show, and is an expression of feelings of guilt over how catastrophic the fallout for Ike was after the interview. Ike's life was destroyed by his appearance on Wogan. He writes, In a little over 15 minutes, that first interview in 1991 burned every bridge to my previous life. There was no going back. There was nothing to go back to. I couldn't walk down any street in Britain without being pointed out and laughed. I was the focus of years of unceasing ridicule and an onslaught that few will ever have experienced. It was historic in scale and nature. As mentioned, Ike was interviewed by Wogan again in 2006. That time it did go very differently, but it wasn't the victory Ike make it, makes it sound like here. With 15 years having passed, Ike was far more active and animated and had probably been rehearsing this day in his mind for quite some time. Whereas in the first Wogan interview, Ike was calm and patient, in the second, he was much more hostile and aggressive. Ike was able to get in a few jokes at Wogan's expense, which the audience loved, and I think Ike misinterprets the audience laughter for solidarity with him. The jokes, coupled with Wogan's more gentle approach to, o to Ike the second go-round, could be interpreted by Ike and his fans as Ike having got payback for the first interview. I plan to have an episode on both interviews in the near future, so stay on the lookout for that when they drop. Ike writes that unfortunately, he wasn't the only target of unwanted attention after the interview in 1991. He writes, Kerry and Gareth were followed to school by journalists and mercilessly ridiculed when they got there every day over their mad father. If you wanted to see an endless flow of humanity at its very worst, in all the depths of its empathy-depleted ignorance and density, you should have been with the Ikes in those years between 1991 and at least a decade later. It's unfortunate, but perhaps inevitable, given the casual cruelty of British tabloids and schoolchildren, that Ike's eldest children, Carrie and Gareth, would be figures of harassment. Rather than blame himself, as any father might, for how his children were impacted, Ike believes the whole experience was character building. He writes, Carrie, Gareth and Linda were subject to ridicule by association, although I think a lot of people felt more sorry for Linda that she lived with a crackpot like me. Carrie, Gareth and later Jamie were all strengthened in their personalities by using the experience of their dad's ridicule to ditch their concern with what others think of them. What hurt me so much over the years about the effect of my actions on them has turned out to be exactly what they needed to experience. Look, until Kerry, Gareth, or Jamie, or ex-wife Linda write a book, we can't really say if they agree with Ike or not. Despite the ridicule, Gareth and Jamie are actively involved in their dad's work these days, so maybe they did ultimately bond through the experience, leaning on each other as the only people who understand what they went through, like survivors of trauma tend to do. Ike takes the time in this chapter to let all us naysayers and detractors of his work let us know what he thinks of us all. He writes... Even today, after all that I said was coming is happening, there are still legions of people so locked away in their programmed self-delusion that Ike's a nutter is still the reflex action response to my name. By self-delusion, 
I mean how they repeat the narratives of authority as their own opinions when they are simply believing what authority wants them to believe to benefit authority. Given that authority wants them to believe that Ike's a nutter, that's what they do. It's me that should be laughing at what is truly pathetic to behold. How such people function between COVID jab and COVID jab, I have no idea. What appears to be one thing, however, can be very much another when viewed from a different angle and perspective. Life doesn't always give you what you want so much as what you need. A communication to me through a psychic in those early years said, True love does not always give the receiver what it would like to receive, but it would always give that which is best for it. So welcome everything you receive, whether you like it or not. Ponder on anything you do not like, and see if you can see why it was necessary. Acceptance will then be very much easier. Look, to his credit, Ike is pretty self-aware, at least with regarding how people think of him, even if completely mistaken about the importance of his work. He writes, Those years of unceasing ridicule were actually setting me free from the prison that most people live in, which is fear of what other people think. My life was going to uncover secrets and truths so fantastic that anyone still concerned with how they were perceived by others would never have spoken about them, never mind so publicly. My conscious mind didn't know what was coming, while other levels of me did. I was being prepared for this, just as my whole life up to this point had been preparation for what I had come here to do. You don't talk about shape-shifting reptilians if you have a smear of concern about how others see you. When you are faced with the years of unyielding and merciless ridicule and abuse that I experienced, you either withdraw from the world and hide away, or you stick your chin up, your chest out, and allow the fire to hone you into unbreakable steel. I chose the latter. I was going to speak my truth, and no level of ridicule and abuse was going to stop me. Ike had burned his reputation, and in doing so, charted a new course for himself as someone with a message to get out. He set about giving lectures and talks. He wasn't without doubts, though. Ike writes, Amid the hysteria of ridicule, I embarked on a speaking tour of university student unions, organised by my old television agent, Paul Vaughan, who stuck with me through it all and proved himself to be a real genuine friend. Can you imagine what happened at those universities? I remember driving home through the night, after my first university event at Bangor in North Wales in the early 1990s. I had been ridiculed all evening by the PAC student audience, and instead of staying overnight, I just wanted to get home. What was the point of going on? Everywhere I went was abuse and ridicule. Outside of my own front door, I couldn't get away from it wherever there were people. The sun was just appearing as I drove along a deserted one-track country road. A psychic had told me a year earlier to pick a symbol that they could show me to communicate answers to questions. Behind her right ear on a shelf was a potfish. I'll make it a fish, I said. As the darkness lied in the early morning on the isolated and deserted country road, I said, Show me a fish if what I am doing is going somewhere, if it is worth keeping on. At that very moment, and I mean the very moment that I asked the question, a big blue van appeared on the rise in the distance. It was the first vehicle I had seen in ages through the night. As the vehicle got closer, I saw that it was a fish and chip van with the word fish blazed above the cab windscreen. The coincidence was so fantastic that I thought, okay, I'll carry on a bit longer and see where it goes. Well, you know, who could argue with a sign like that? I've told the universe if it wants me to stop this podcast, our safe word is also fish. Ike tells variations of the same story over the following pages. He gives a talk, he is ridiculed, repeat. But he writes that as he persisted spreading the message, his knowledge only grew. I was gathering ever more detailed information about how those that appeared to be running the world were actually pawns of those really in control. Later, I came across the non-human force behind it all, and later still the illusory nature of our apparently physical world and the simulation that holds humanity in perceptual servitude. I'll cover all these aspects and put them together in a coherent whole as we proceed. Information would come from whistleblowers, people inside government military intelligence networks, researchers in specialised fields, books, documents, direct personal experience. The sources were many. An extraordinary picture emerged that is still expanding into ever greater knowledge to this day. A new subject would come into my life, and suddenly, information on that subject would be coming at me from all angles. This recurring process has taken me deeper and deeper in the rabbit hole as I have been led to knowledge, and knowledge has been put into my mind. It wasn't just knowledge that I acquired during this time. Before long, he had a travelling companion named Yiva. 
I can Yeva. Doesn't that sound like the worst version of Doctor Who imaginable? Anyway. Ike writes, I travelled to Texas with Yeva, who looked appropriately like a Native American grandmother with her long grey hair. We met just over a year earlier in Glastonbury in Somerset House, next to the famous Glastonbury Tour. Yeva was a godsend to me at the time. I was still trying to understand what on earth was happening in my life, and she had long experience in esoteric circles and had considerable psychic abilities. We began to travel together and arrange talks to which nobody came. Ike, Yeva, and Ike's massive ego became a trio. Ike writes, While I was speaking for my 90 minutes, I saw that Yeva was talking intently with a Native American-looking guy. When I finished, she came over to say, You have to talk with this man. I did, and he was indeed a Native American. He said that he never came to New Age events. He found them nonsensical, but something told him he should come to this one. He had a little stall selling his wares. The man said, that when I started to speak, he knew why he had felt so strongly to be there. We have a legend, he said, about a white man who would come to Turtle Island, America, and change everything. You are that man. He handed me a beautiful eagle feather, which I have beside my bed to this day. I knew nothing of the legend. I read when I searched out the story that the Hopi people in Arizona await the return of Pahana, their lost white brother, who will come from the east and bring peace and a new religion. Oh, piss off. Give me a break. This anecdote marks the beginning of several rambling pages about eagle feathers and Native Americans and Native Canadians. Ike sees signs everywhere, you know. He gets lost and he finds a pub with an eagle in the name, so that's a sign. Ike sees a photo of a Native Canadian named Sitting on an Eagle Feather, and then later that day he's visiting a bookshop specialising in Native Canadian history and finds reference to sitting on an eagle feather while leafing through one of the books. So that's a sign. He sees signs everywhere. Ike pulls off the highway to admire the view and later finds out he was overlooking the land that sitting on an eagle feather chose as a location for a reservation. So of course that's a sign as well. You know, you get the idea. All this culminates in Yeva having a vision at Stonehenge and Ike probably catching bird mites. Ike writes, Yeva was a visual psychic, and as we sat among the stones in the darkness, she said she was seeing the whole of the surrounding Salisbury Plain covered in Native American teepees. She then said that a long line of Native American spirits were coming towards us, and the chief at the front was holding a long headdress, which he was handing to me, saying, It's time to give you your feathers, or something close to that. The next morning I wanted to see an abbey building in Amesbury, nearest village to Stonehenge, which is now the Amesbury Abbey Care Home. Yeva stayed at the nearby church, and I walked down the path to the abbey to find it closed off. I came back to see Yeva on the far side of the churchyard, stooping down constantly picking up something from the grass, over and over again. What the? I walked towards her to see that she was picking up feathers, as literally hundreds of them were appearing out of nowhere, at about 50 feet and falling all over the grass. It was raining feathers! The few trees in the churchyard were not very tall, and there were certainly no birds around. Even if there had been, how would they produce hundreds of feathers that literally manifested out of the aether, fifty feet or so above us? I stood there watching them manifest and fall. We were there for ages, picking up as many as we could carry, and it was well over three hundred before we gave up, with still more falling. I took them home and kept them for years. Once again, that's impossible, right? We will see. It's not. I have spoken to many people around the world who have seen objects appearing out of nowhere, including coins, crystals, many different things, which they've kept. We are in a simulation. A virtual reality game creator could not insert a program in which feathers fall out of the sky, or a storm comes out of the mountains super fast, or a stone circle. You get what I'm saying, and we'll be going much deeper. Well, let me assure you, I don't get what you're saying, Mr. Ike but I'm intrigued to go deeper. Ike makes no mention of his books published between 1991 and 1996, which includes a now out-of-print autobiography. Nor does he mention the controversy caused by including the anti-Semitic fabrication The Protocols of the Elders of Zion in his 1994 book, The Robot's Rebellion, as evidence of a secret, possibly extraterrestrial, 
cabal ruling the world. Ike also leaves out details of his personal life, including the complex polygamous relationship he had with his wife and psychic Deborah Shaw, also known as Mary Shaw Son. This relationship was known in the tabloids at the time as the turquoise triangle because of their proclivity for wearing only turquoise at the time, and seemingly ended when Shaw slash Shaw Son gave birth to Ike's daughter and left the Ike's home to return to the US. Ike also omits the death of his father, which is odd considering the focus on him earlier in the book. Instead of personal events, Ike focuses on his speaking engagements and their growth and popularity throughout the early to mid-90s. Despite his notoriety now, Ike admits it took a while for him to find his audience. I put the term speaking tours in quotes because, yes, I was speaking, but next to no one was listening. You could hardly claim them to be a tour, except in the literal travelling sense. I would speak night after night to tiny audiences, sometimes five in someone's front room as I did in New England one evening. I spoke in Portland, Oregon, where the organiser said at the start how pleased he was to see so many people there. There were 40. Blimey! What was he expecting then? It was heartaching and sometimes heartbreaking to wake, travel, speak, sleep, day after day, week after week, for three months at a time, when interest in my information was almost non-existent. What's the point? crossed my mind so many times. Something deep inside me drove me on, and just when I was at my lowest, something would happen to give me a lift and keep me going. On the 1996 tour, the pointlessness of it all was almost overwhelming me when I arrived in Vancouver, Canada, to a one-off event organised by a great man, Joseph Dugan. He was a vociferous campaigner for freedom, despite the serious, debilitating consequences of Parkinson's. Joseph had hired a hotel conference room. I expected another night talking to empty chairs, and found the place to be full with 250 people. What a lift that gave me to carry on, and the next year it was 350, the next 750, then 1,000. And it would have been thousands after that had venues not cancelled bookings through the efforts of ultra-Zionist organisations and a bloke called Richard Warman, a government employee in Ottawa, who seemed obsessed with preventing me from speaking in public. Considering the persistent undertone of anti-Semitism throughout Ike's work, I can't fault Jewish groups for not wanting Ike to, sp to make speaking appearances. Richard Warman, who Ike off-handedly describes as a bloke working for the government in Ottawa, is a lawyer specialising in human rights who worked for the Canadian Human Rights Commission from 2002 to 2004. Warman initiated proceedings against Ike for rebellious comments Ike made about him in his book Children of the Matrix. The case was settled in 2015, with Ike agreeing to pay $210,000 to Warman and remove the comments from future editions of his book. Ike doesn't mention this, however. I'm sure you're shocked to hear it. Anyway. Ike was touring at home as well as abroad with similar results. He writes, It was the same story back in the UK. Yeva would travel around Britain with me. I would so often put the chairs out, talk to them, then put them away again poorer than when I had arrived. At the same time, people were saying, Where's the money going? Out of my life was the answer. Ike writes that the rest of the 1990s were much the same for him, touring and speaking to modest-sized crowds and selling books to get by. It wasn't until the early 2000s that Ike was able to capitalise on the uptick in interest in conspiracy theories following the 9-11 attacks, much like he has in recent years with the COVID pandemic. Ike writes, Interest in my work expanded rapidly after the blatantly staged 9-11 attacks, which were not the work of 19 Arab hijackers. This increased further when George Bush and Tony Blair lied for their masters about weapons of mass destruction to justify a catastrophic invasion of Iraq. The momentum has continued to gather, and grow, ever since, with two all-day events at the Wembley Arena in London, where I had once played in a television, in a televised national five-a-side tournament for Coventry City in 1967, and later presented sports programs there, including that BBC Horse of the Year show. To walk out on stage and see all those thousands of people in 2012 and 2014 was a testament to the fact that the waters were breaking. With the COVID era, has come global recognition for my work, with my stream of books since the early 1990s warning that what is happening today was coming unless humanity awoke to its real controllers and the agenda being pursued for global, technologically imposed fascism. From here, Ike winds up the story of his life with more boasting of the large crowds he has spoken to 
the reach he has on the internet despite attempts to de-platform him, and the involvement of his sons, Jamie and Gareth, in his online platform, The Iconic. Ike sums up thusly. My life has been guided to experience whatever I needed to experience. Go wherever I needed to go, in pursuit of both of expanding awareness and understanding human plight. On that basis, my life was never going to be normal. How could it be? The goals and priorities were at odds from the start with a normal human experience. From the time my mind was blown in 1991, I have not seen my life in human terms with human goals and ambitions, the need to do human things and live in a human way. I have seen my life as a job. If that meant missing out a lot on holidays, days out, nights out, and perceived fun, then so be it. I have come to work, and at some point I will return home, to my true home, not an illusory one. Being out of sync with normal has brought many challenges and much ridicule and abuse, and all has been worth it. I wouldn't change a thing. I am now going to lay out what all the synchronicity of experience and information in my travels to some 60 countries this past 32 years has shown me about the reality that we perceive as human society. With the information and info in insights continuing to unfold, I'm going deeper than ever before into where we are, what we are, and why we are here at all. With that, we'll leave Ike for now, and return next time to start looking at what revelations and nonsense Ike is offering readers about the true nature of reality, and what happens after death in the next chapters of The Trap. Now, if you would like to support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You can find us at www.patreon.com forward slash Ikeland. If you'd like to contact me, including with corrections, which are encouraged, you can email me at ikelandpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, remember, libellious comments about human rights lawyers can cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. And rightly so.